Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. I'm excited because today we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, sleep. Now, I know a lot of people do struggle with it, and especially couples have had problems as a result of sleep-oriented things like snoring. And today, our guest, Morris Chang, a physician sleep specialist, is going to give you a lot of tips and general advice when it comes to sleep. And, and I want to preface the episode by saying that he is just going to give you general advice. And if you have any specific or individual situations, he's going to provide some resources for you at the end of the episode to explore um, for your specific situation. So before we dive in, I want to tell you a little bit about Morris. Morris was born in Illinois, raised in Kansas, and has gotten all kinds of training from his BA in chemistry from the University of Kansas to becoming an MD at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. He spent his internship at the University of Vermont College of Medicine, his residency in clinical neurophysiology and sleep medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine, his fellowships in the same location, and most recently, his MBA from the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. Morris is a diplomat of the American Board of Sleep Medicine, a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, a fellow of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology, a recipient of the Top Doctor Award from Seattle Magazine and Seattle Met for numerous years, formerly the Medical Director of Highline Sleep Center and Auburn Regional Medical Center Sleep Disorder Center, and currently Physician Sleep Specialist with Swedish Medical Group in Seattle. And what's really cool is that he's also a multi-talented musician. He plays bass, keyboards, drums, percussion, and alto sax, and he knows how to fly planes. He's a private pilot and is married with two teenage boys. Morris is awesome. Welcome, Morris. Thanks, Michelle. I'm happy to be here. Now, you and I met uh, through music. That's right. Yeah, we did a uh, a music camp in Los Angeles, and man, what fun that was! I know, so long ago. We were just talking about like where did time go? <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I'm so glad to reconnect with you and be able to connect you to the listeners of NOL to talk about sleep. I think it's such a big topic nowadays, and I'd love for you to share how you got interested in this type of medicine. Uh, thanks, Michelle. You know, I've I've been practicing sleep medicine for many years, and every once in a while, I have. People ask me, I mean, why do you do this? You know, why is it, um, why is this your specialty? And I guess the answer to that is it's fun. I mean, there's a hundred sleep disorders out there uh, of all different types, uh, but I'm, we're usually able to make people better. I, sometimes I can cure things. Now, I'm a neurologist by training, and uh, anybody familiar with the neurologic sciences knows it can be really hard to cure problems associated with the brain and spinal cord. But I can cure problems in sleep. That's a blast. Mm, that's, that's awesome. A- so tell us more about what a physician sleep specialist then is. Like, what are your functions? Sure. So, uh, so sleep medicine is a is an independent uh, branch of medicine that involves the evaluation and management of sleep disorders of all sorts. But it does tie back to the brain, though, right? Well, yes. Sleep is generated in the brain, uh, but there are a number of processes associated with sleep uh, that can involve other uh, organ systems. So, uh, for example, there's a very common uh, sleep disorder called obstructive sleep apnea, uh, which 
is essentially a mechanical problem that involves the upper airway. So it's actually, in fact, a breathing problem. It's mm. a disorder of uh, sleep disordered breathing. Uh, but sleep is generated in the brain, so there's many different forms of sleep disorders that involve the brain, from mm. narcolepsy, which a lot of people have heard about, uh, to idiopathic hypersomnia, to a number of different movement disorders uh, that uh, appear to have uh, brain involvement uh, in its etiology. Wow, that's amazing. So for you as a physician sleep specialist, like how do you work with your patients? Because there's so many different types of sleep disorders. I mean, where do you begin? Well, so uh, it usually begins by a patient being referred uh, to our clinic uh, by a provider, a healthcare provider, uh, that has some kind of clinical concern for the patient. And it could be a number of different problems. For example, uh, the patient may tell the primary care physician, you know, I've not really slept more than an hour or two a night for the past two weeks. Or the patient may be a truck driver who is falling asleep behind uh, the wheel. Uh. Now, uh, the occupational medicine clinic is raising concerns about the possibility that this person may be unsafe to drive, and it's not clear why. Or the, the patient may be uh, somebody who's in her 70s, for example, and is having a hard time uh, falling asleep because her legs are uncomfortable and restless and are moving around all, all night long. Um, so there's a whole host of different reasons why a patient may come to see me. Uh, in addition, uh, patients may choose to just simply uh, schedule an appointment to see me without even speaking with a doctor because they know there's something wrong with their sleep. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, though, a lot of people just kind of like push through it. Like they'll just be tired and they're like, oh, I'm just tired. I'm just I'm working a lot of hours. Why do you think many times it's never even brought to the doctor? That's right. So that's a really important point, uh, Michelle. Um, a, a lot of the time, uh, sleep disorders are associated with symptoms that a lot of the time people don't even really consider to be symptoms. Uh, you know, if you're tired uh, all day, but you've been feeling that way for years, it may just kind of feel like you're normal. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It just feels like something that is just uh, kind of part of your everyday life and may not even register as a problem, even though you're falling asleep in front of the TV all the time and you can't even watch your favorite show. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily feel abnormal because it happens so frequently. The other problem is, you know, sleepiness is not necessarily painful all the time, right? Like if you have, I don't know, if you have chest pain, for example, uh, you think maybe something's wrong. Yeah. Like you go see the doctor. You think yeah. maybe there might be a problem with your heart. But if you're tired um, all the time and you get five or six hours of sleep a night and you feel like that's a reason why you're sleepy, uh, it may not necessarily feel like it's a problem that you need to bring to the attention mm -hmm. of a health And so then people don't come to you until something actually happens. Like Yep, that, that's exactly right. There are uh, many times in which a patient will come to see me because they've wrecked their car, because they've fallen asleep behind the wheel, and it's not entirely clear to them why, they, why that's happened. Um, and it, this may have happened with them for the past five to 10 years, but uh, it's not until they actually get into a wreck that they feel like, mm. oh, the problem that's bad enough to warrant an evaluation. Right. But right. Uh, coming back to this, uh, this um, clinical entity called obstructive sleep apnea, for example, the um, studies that have do been done on, uh, on sleep apnea indicate that the average sleep apnea patient takes about 4.5 years between the onset of the symptoms and the time that they've actually become evaluated at a sleep center. So patients wow. can blow this up for years and years. Yep. Oh my gosh. So do you think that that could be also tied back to, I mean, 
think about it in our culture, especially American culture, being a workaholic and, and, you know, working yourself to the bone is considered respectable. Like not getting enough sleep is like cool. Like the more hours I work, the more I'm going to get done. Would you say that that's also part of the problem? Absolutely. Uh, Because sleepiness can be caused by all sorts of stuff. But uh, frankly, at least in the United States, the most common cause of sleepiness is just plain old sleep deprivation. I mean, the vast majority of adults require around seven to eight hours of sleep a night to feel fully rested. And I don't know about you, Michelle, but actually a lot of people I know, um, they don't get that much sleep most of the time. Yeah. And in fact, oftentimes a lot of my colleagues uh, get maybe four or five hours of sleep a night, maybe five nights out of the week. Mm-hmm. And it just ain't enough for most people. Um, so it's a very common uh, issue. But again, because it's kind of ingrained in American culture that you just kind of have to work hard and play hard and kind of sleep just gets uh, swept under the rug. Frequently. Yeah. I and love so, to sleep, Morris. Like, uh, <laughs> it's dreamy. Yeah. I just like nine hours is my sweet spot. Oh, right. Yeah. I got my eight hours last night. I'm feeling good this morning. Yeah. So is it true for the people who are sleep deprived, right? They're working all week long. They're staying up until, you know, 12, 1 a.m., maybe even two, waking up at six, doing it all over again. Is it true that they could catch up on their sleep over the weekend? Well, uh, so... Yes, to some degree. So there's this concept called sleep debt, which is the amount of sleep that your body requires that you're not giving it, right? So uh, there is some controversy about how you make up sleep debt. Uh, But if you think about it, right, if you get six hours of sleep a night, Monday through Friday, and when your body needs eight, then you've accumulated 10 hours worth of sleep debt uh, by the time Friday night happens. Hmm. But it's going to be difficult for you to make up that whole 10 hours worth of sleep debt in a single weekend. That means you'll be needing 13 hours of sleep Friday night and 13 hours of sleep Saturday night. (laughs) And most people are not going to do that. I mean, you might get nine, maybe 10 hours of sleep uh, on your weekends and it's just not enough to cover all the sleep debt. So uh, you hear about people sometimes talking about how they got quote unquote too much sleep, for example, because Mm -hmm. they feel really groggy when they sleep in. Well, they usually feel groggy, not because they got too much sleep, actually. It's really because they've kind of dysregulated their sleep schedules because now they're, they've slept in way beyond the time that you, they usually wake up. And your body clock generally wants you to sleep kind of in regular times uh, every 24-hour period. Mm. But the other thing, too, is you haven't made up all the sleep that you've missed. Uh, so the additional sleep debt can carry on into the following week. Following wow. Week. So how yeah. best can you catch up then just over a period of time, like start going to bed earlier and increasing your daily amount of sleep and getting into a routine? That, that's exactly right, Michelle. So my, my recommendation uh, in general for anybody would be to generally get as much sleep as your body requires. Uh, and, you know, there's no good quantitative test that we can do in a lab that says, oh, you need uh, you know, 7.58 hours of sleep per night. There's no such thing. But in general, people kind of general, generally understand what their body rhythms are. Um, and uh, if your body needs about eight hours of sleep a night, you want to do what you can to prioritize sleep to the point in which you're getting usually about eight hours of sleep a night. Mm-hmm. Your body can handle some flexibility so that maybe one night every once in a while you're getting less than that, and it's pretty easy to make up. But chronic sleep deprivation can cause all sorts of problems, both short-term and long-term. So I definitely recommend against that. So doing what you can to respect your body's requirements for the amount of sleep that you need, that's what I would recommend day after day to the extent that you possibly can. Mm -hmm. What are some of the results of chronic sleep deprivation? 
Well, so uh, so from a purely clinical perspective, I mean, chronic sleep deprivation has been clearly demonstrated to be associated with substantial problems with staying awake and alert during the day. So people with, uh, with that are chronically sleep deprived can fall asleep by accident during the day when they don't mean to, including behind the wheel. Um, there uh, can be all sorts of uh, performance problems, both in school and at work associated with that. Uh, people can have problems with mood. Uh, it can trigger a number of mood-related problems from depression to generalized anxiety. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so there's now more on a, a scientific kind of cellular level, there's uh, more recent research that suggests that uh, that inflammatory processes may occur more frequently in the setting of chronic sleep deprivation. Uh, the, there's a number of problems that can actually occur on a cellular biological level if you're chronically sleep deprived. So, you know, watch out. <laughs> I believe know? that. I believe Probably that. Need. I become a total biatch if I haven't had enough sleep. <laughs> <laughs> So I get the mood part of it. So I know a lot of people who struggle with insomnia, like they just cannot get themselves. They're just wired until, you know, very late at night. What are the different forms that insomnia takes, first of all? And then how do you work with your patients who suffer from that? Well, insomnia can be caused by a great many things. I mean, you know, if you drink uh, an energy drink at 10 p.m., for example, you can obviously have difficulties falling asleep uh, because of that, because the contents of the drink can, uh, uh, can include a number of stimulants, which can cause you to stay awake and alert. Um, caffeine can cause it, uh, mood problems can cause it. Uh, uh, the way uh, you craft your bedtime is a very common uh, contributor to the problem. So uh, the way I deal with insomnia in the clinic is, uh, is by starting off trying to understand kind of the underlying causes for the problem. I mean, by the time they hit my door, the uh, patients with insomnia usually have at least several reasons to have the problem, and those problems, can, uh, uh, those symptoms can be happening just kind of all at the same time. So, you know, even if they try to solve one problem, there's a number of other issues that can actually cause the insomnia to perpetuate, leaving that person feeling like, oh, you know, everything that I'm doing is not working. To mm. help you. Well, what are some of those reasons? You said there are several. Sure. So, you know, I, I really uh, look at a patient's bedtime sleep schedule as a very, very important uh, uh, thing to evaluate when trying to figure out why the person has insomnia. And just as an extreme example, uh, you know, I've had several occasions in which patients have come to my clinic, uh, you know, claiming that Ambien, for example, a medication to help you sleep, uh, hasn't worked for them and they've had problems for years and years uh, and they just cannot fall asleep. But when I ask them about their uh, sleep schedule, you know, they go to bed at 8 p.m. and they have a hard time sleeping and they're kind of sleeping on and off all night long, but they don't get out of bed until 8 a.m. So they're spending 12 hours in bed. And again, most people need about seven or eight hours of sleep a night. Your body won't let you sleep more than what your body needs. So if you're spending 12 hours in bed when your body only needs eight, well, I'm, Ambien is not going to help that. I mean, spending eight hours in bed instead of 12 is going to help that. Mm -hmm. So that's an extreme example, but you do see that in clinic from time to time. Another potential problem is the sheer irregularity of sleep scheduling. So that, that bears some mentioning because, you know, teenagers do that a lot, right? Um, uh, you know, Adults do too, especially adults. rockers. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, definitely people that uh, play music do this a lot. But yeah. you know, the classic situation is a teenager that, um, you know, that has to wake up 
at six o'clock in the morning to go to school, and it's really hard for them to wake up at six. Um, and uh, but by the time Friday night rolls around, you know they uh, they still want to go to bed late, like n- uh, midnight or one o'clock, mm-hmm. and then they sleep until like noon, right? Mm-hmm. They sleep in until noon on Saturday, and then noon on Sunday. But then they're expected to go to bed at whatever, 9 or 10 p.m. on Sunday night so they can wake up at 6 a.m. And you know what? Your body clock just doesn't work that way. Your body clock is kind of a creature of habit when it comes to sleep. It wants you to be regular. Yeah, which is why when you travel, you get so messed up. That's exactly right, Michelle. So there's this thing called jet lag, which most people are familiar with. And jet lag is a phenomenon that occurs when you rapidly uh, travel across several time zones and then you're expected to sleep now in the new place where you now are, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, I'm here on the West Coast. I'm in Seattle. And uh, so if you fly from Seattle to New York, uh, it's a three-hour time difference between here and New York City when you fly there. Um, the problem is your body clock in your brain doesn't like moving more than one hour's worth of shift change per day. So, therefore, people who fly from here to New York typically take about three days to catch up to New York time. So people who fly from here to the East Coast uh, typically have insomnia for about three days. That's what jet lag does. Wow. So if you think about it, right, if you're used to waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning, but then you sleep in on Saturday morning until 9 a.m., it's kind of like you're flying to New York and back every weekend. Right? Oh, my gosh. It's the same concept. It's kind of a jet lagging equivalent. And you know what the problem, Michelle, is that as we get older, once we get into our 40s and 50s, your, your ability to tolerate changes in your sleep shifts, sleep deprivation, um, these things start to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's why like people who work the night shift and then they, work, uh, and then they uh, revert back to a nighttime sleeping schedule on their days off, you know, there's only so long uh, night shift workers kind of can continue to do that. Right. Uh, people typically kind of drop out of that kind of situation um, after a number of years because it just becomes harder and harder yeah. to do. Yeah, I don't know how anyone does that. I got to sleep when it's dark out, you know? Yep. I mean, I'm somewhat yep. of a night owl, but then it gets to a point where I'm like, okay, it's time for bed. What about the use of, um, a lot of people are talking about like screens and you know smartphones using those late at night. Yeah, so uh, that's become a big topic because so many people are uh, so frequently tied to their electronics now. And that creates insomnia, so, right? It can. I mean, there's several reasons why. I mean, number one is the content, obviously. I mean, if you are uh, you know, engaged in something that's uh, intellectually or emotionally stimulating late at night when you're trying to sleep, I mean, that can cause a stimulating effect and it can cause you to stay awake longer than what you wish or than what you expect. Mm-hmm. The other problem can be uh, uh, light exposure. Now, you know, cell phones, I mean, the screens are pretty small compared to a big TV, but it's right in front of your face. So it can, in some cases, kind of bathe your retinas with light. The problem is that your uh, the back of your eyeball is kind of connected to a certain part of your brain that's responsible for your levels of wakefulness and alertness. And so it can kind of trick your brain into thinking, hey, it's daytime if your uh, the back of your eyeball is kind of bathed in light uh, at night, and it can create a stimulating effect as well. Wow. It's, the noise as well can also cause, uh, cause trouble, especially if you have earbuds in. Um, you know, loud noises can also ca- create a stimulating effect. So those three basic things, which have always been kind of discussed uh, for, for example, uh, big screen televisions, 
um, now they can apply to these small electronics because you're kind of looking at it right right in front of your nose. Mm-hmm. I love my earplugs. <laughs> I, I put them in so I can just block out everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's actually a reasonable thing to do, especially as you're kind of preparing to uh, to kind of go to go to at night. Uh, you know, I recommend that for my insomnia patients. You want to kind of prepare for. Uh, for this uh, this idea that you're actually going to go to sleep uh, around a certain time. I mean, you want to start kind of winding down things, not only physically and emotionally, but actually also electronically. You yeah. want to kind of start dimming stuff down a couple hours prior to your projected bedtime, um, so that uh, so that you're the whole of you, including your brain, and can prepare properly. Mm-hmm. Or just the- read a regular old fashioned book. You know what? I still love doing that, man. Me too. Everything- something and it's not electronic (laughs) yeah yeah i have a lot of books i've actually had to you know do some cleaning because i had too many i couldn't fit them all in my bookcase anymore (laughs) so still talking about insomnia how does alcohol play a role in that well so alcohol is a funny thing um it does have uh some initial sedative effects so one reason i mean you you hear about kind of alcohol affecting people in different ways right like uh, happy drunks versus angry drunks mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, people react differently. And I think one reason why is because numerous things happen in the setting of alcohol ingestion kind of at the same time. On one hand, uh, the alcohol molecule uh, is kind of a mildly sedating agent, uh, which is one reason why some people historically have kind of utilized alcohol to help them get to sleep at night, which by the way, I definitely don't recommend, Um, but uh, some people have historically done that. Yeah. At the same time, it's also kind of an emotionally inhibiting substance, so it can be fun to to use at parties, for example. Mm -hmm. So so there's that push and pull there, Uh, but uh, about three or four hours after you drink alcohol, it can end up being a sleep disruptor. So for example, if you tie one on, um, some people may find themselves waking up at four o'clock in the morning. It's like, hey, why am I awake now? You know. Right. Um, so alcohol can sometimes do that as kind of a latent effect about three or four hours after. Yeah, I totally have experienced that, where you know I'll be at a party or I'm drinking with friends and we we have too much wine, and then I get super exhausted, fall asleep, and then I wake up at four a.m. and I'm like, why am I up? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And alcohol can do that, and the more you drink, the more likely that can happen. And it become it can become a chronic issue, I imagine, because, you know, I, I know people who really do need to drink in order to go to bed, and that's bad. Yeah, and uh, that's right, Michelle. And, and one concern about that is if you're used to doing that, then a person can believe that they actually literally need uh, the alcohol to help them sleep when it's actually biologically kind of not true. Mm-hmm. Um, an equivalent of that would be, you know, a patient will tell me every once in a while, I need the television on in oh, order yeah. to sleep. I've heard that. And, mm-hmm. and the, right. Yeah, a lot of people have heard that. Maybe some of your listeners are doing that. Um, but if you really think about this logically, I mean, your body does not biologically require the television to be on when you're sleeping. Um, <laughs> the, the, the problem is, is that if you're used to having the television on, and if in the past you've found yourself able to sleep a little bit better with the television on, then it feels like it's required, like it's a biological requirement when it actually isn't. Mm -hmm. So that's, and just using that as an example, but I mean, one major reason why people have insomnia is 
it has to do with the tension and the frustration that's associated with spending a lot of time awake in bed. It drives you nuts. I mean, nobody wants to be in bed awake when they're trying to sleep. Right, right. It's always a frustrating problem. The problem, Michelle, is that that feeling of frustration, that's a stimulating emotion. It makes you feel more awake and alert. So the more time you spend awake in bed, the more frustrated you get, the more awake you feel, and then the worse the insomnia gets, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one reason why a large part of insomnia management has to do with minimizing the amount of time spent awake in bed. If you gotta be awake at night, uh, you know, you should go somewhere else and do something else. So, so one reason why a lot of people feel like the television uh, helps them sleep is because they uh, know that when they're spending hours and hours tossing and turning in bed, um, when they get out of bed and they go to the living room, turn on the television and lay down on the couch, what's the first thing that happens? They fall asleep, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because now they're not applying that immediate pressure on themselves to fall asleep. And the television is just distracting enough to get their minds off this frustration. Wow. And then there's also the factor of white noise. Like, don't people talk about that or use that in certain, like, sleep aids? Like those things that you could put on your, your side dresser that just to have, like, I don't know, like fizzle noise. Sure. So, yeah. So there's a couple of important aspects to that. I mean, if the reason why you're doing that is to, uh, is to drown out some other noise then you, my suggestion would be to kind of rethink uh, your, your sleeping environment. Uh, and that could be anything from a bed partner that's snoring loudly uh, to, you know, the construction going outside of your uh, apartment. I've I mean, had that. Okay. And barking uh, dogs. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, so the general recommendation that I would give to people, and this is sometimes easier for me to say than for people to do, is to keep your... Uh, sleeping environment dark quiet and cool we human beings typically sleep best in a dark quiet cool environment so if there's something that happens that kind of disrupts that then it can naturally cause problems sleeping so if the reason why a person is having white noise you know putting white noise in their room um you know you need to think about kind of why are you doing that if the reason why is because your spouse is snoring loudly well, I mean, it might be worthwhile to consider having that spouse have an evaluation, for example, to see whether or not there can be something that can be done about the loud snoring. Um, so you don't recommend now, using white noise as a tool for the long term? Um, I mean, you can, but it depends on the context. The other concern I have, I would have, would be if a person is using that white noise because they believe that it helped them sleep before, and then again, they get into this psychological kind of condition where they feel like, oh, now I'm not going to be able to sleep without the white noise. That may or may not be true, but if a person believes that wholeheartedly, well, there's a, there's a psychological component mm. to, uh, to insomnia sometimes. And uh, if you believe that you need something to help you sleep, even when it may not necessarily be true, then if you're without that thing, you may just naturally have some difficulty sleeping, even though biologically you'd be able to sleep just fine. Yeah, it's amazing. It's not just this biological thing. It's like when you start dealing with the psychological piece, that's when it gets really difficult. I'd imagine that makes your job very complex, <laughs> you know? Yes. I mean, there's many reasons, like I say, that a person can have insomnia, but a lot of it has to do with the way the person perceives the difficulties. Mm -hmm. For example, I mean, if you've had... 20 years of insomnia and you look at your bed in the afternoon and you think to yourself I know I'm not going to sleep very well there tonight well I mean you probably won't sleep very well there tonight right so, right. Um, so the way you perceive your ability to sleep 
does, I think, play a substantial role, at least for some patients, in terms of their ability to sleep well. Mm-hmm. And so one of my jobs, uh, you know, sometimes I take off the doctor hat in clinic and put on my coaching hat and say, well, here's, you know, here are some things that you can do to make this better. And But, you know, you, a lot of this stems from this idea that you kind of have to believe that you're able to sleep well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so you know, patients can uh, come to me, for example, uh, telling me about uh, very severe insomnia, but it's only been around for a year, right? And if you're 50 and you've slept well for 49 years, but you've slept poorly for one, I mean, chances are probably pretty good, depending on the clinical circumstance, that you'll be able to sleep well again. And sometimes my job is to help remind people that that's the case. Mm-hmm. I love that idea of just believing that you can. I mean, we do that in so many other areas. You know, when people talk about career and meeting your goals, well, yeah. you can do that with your sleep too. The, the tough part about that, Michelle, is that uh, sometimes people try really hard to sleep, right? Like they make it uh, a goal that they're trying to achieve. And that actually can backfire sometimes, right? Because how do you try successfully to fall asleep? I mean, you know, it doesn't really work all the time. I mean, let's say that I want to fall asleep like right now, right? How am I going to do that? I'm fully awake. Uh, you know, um, how am I going to fall asleep? Um, it's hard to do that. Uh, the idea is to uh, allow yourself to be in a situation in which everything is kind of conducive to naturally falling asleep. Mm-hmm. So trying actually kind of works against you. I mean, this whole thing about counting sheep and all that, I mean, <laughs> it can help sometimes from the standpoint of distracting yourself from the frustration. But the problem is if, you, if you're if you not asleep after you've done whatever exercise you've decided to do and you're still awake, then, you know, you're frustrating yourself again, right? It's right. like, oh, man. It didn't work, and now it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I've got to wake up at 7 o'clock because I've got to perform at work. And So you're applying all this pressure upon yourself, and that can actually be counterproductive. Yeah, so the whole idea is to get to that point of true relaxation, authentic relaxation. So let's talk more about the snoring because um, I, I've definitely struggled with that, um, not myself, but with okay. you know previous partner. And um, so when couples come to you, how do you work with them, especially when the spouse who's actually snoring doesn't believe that he or she is. Yeah, right. And that happens more than you may think. So here's the problem, right? We're used to symptoms being based on something experiential. In other words, uh, you know, again, kind of coming back to this kind of chest pain thing. If you if you wake up and you have chest pain, you're concerned, right? Something's wrong. Maybe something's wrong with your heart, and you go see the doctor. But snoring is something that happens while you are sleeping. By mm-hmm. definition, you are snoring when you're asleep, so you're not awake to uh, to recognize that it's happening. You may sometimes have some after effects, like a dry mouth or a sore throat or something, but when a spouse is complaining about the loud snoring, it's generally not bothering you as much as it's bothering <laughs> right. you. Right. But that, that really can cause a ton of problems. Like, I remember being so sleep-deprived as a result of being woken up several times through the night because of snoring. Yep. Yep. And it's frustrating. It, absolutely. And I've had, I've in fact had patients that have told me that they have gotten divorced uh, in some matter due to the snoring. Wow. Now, but by, by, by that time, by the time there's divorce happening, I think that it's probably not necessarily just the loud noise that induces the, the divorce or the marital discord. Sure. It's really more like the spouse may not feel listened to, right? Uh, because 
because the snoring person may just simply blow it off because it's not bothering them. Yeah. Or, and, and I've had some patients that have done this too, where, where they've actually just simply actively denied having snores. Mm-hmm. Like, no. <laughs> I've actually like recorded it and played it back and been like, see? <laughs> and, and that was not taken snoring? well. That was not received yeah, well. Right. And again, it comes back to this idea that the snorer is not directly experiencing the effects of the snoring, uh, but it can cause lots of problems for the bed partner. I mean, as I'd mentioned, I mean, people prefer to sleep in a dark, quiet, cool environment. Mm-hmm. And if there's somebody sawing logs right next to you all night long, <laughs> it can cause all sorts of problems. So how do you help solve that issue when a couple comes to you and they're kind of at wit's end? Sure. So, you know, there's a little bit of a selection bias here, Michelle, because by the time patients come to see me, they usually recognize that there's a problem. And sometimes uh, a spouse or a bed partner will be almost literally dragging the patient in mm-hmm. uh, and uh, discuss the snoring. Uh, the more common issue is what happens in the primary care physician's office because uh, a patient may be tired and sleepy uh, all day long but not mention anything about the snoring to the primary care doctor even though the spouse is complaining bitterly about how loud the snoring is. The problem with that, Michelle, is that this combination of loud snoring and excessive daytime sleepiness can suggest the possibility of a breathing problem going on in sleep called obstructive sleep apnea, or sleep apnea for short, which is something that maybe a lot of your listeners may have heard about. And this is a breathing problem in sleep in which the soft tissues in your throat can occasionally and temporarily collapse or close down on itself while you're sleeping. And that can cause sleep disruption at night, which can then cause you to feel tired and sleepy during the day. This is a, a real problem, not only because uh, it can cause daytime sleepiness uh, and insomnia, but it also is associated with an increased risk for developing certain medical problems like congestive heart failure, heart attack, early stroke, uh, hypertension, which is high blood pressure. So it's actually a bona fide medical problem, which is very underrecognized and underdiagnosed. And so it's important for spouses. Uh, and patients to inform the primary care doc, hey, you know, in addition to the daytime sleepiness, this person is also actually snoring substantially. Mm. That's great to know. Because you often just think that, oh, they're just a little overweight. Like, we'll have to just like eat a little more healthy. So, you know, he or she could take off that extra 20 pounds, and then it'll go away. Then the snoring should go away. Is that not always the case? Like, even if they get healthier in their their diet and their routine, there may still be other additional things contributing to the snoring, right? Uh, Absolutely. So it is true that if you are overweight, you do stand a greater likelihood of snoring substantially and having obstructive sleep apnea. However, you do not have to be a loud snorer to have obstructive sleep apnea, and you do not have to be obese to snore, and you do not have to be obese to have obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason, I think, why sleep apnea is so underrecognized and underdiagnosed in the United States uh, is because a lot of the time people have kind of this um, notion of what a sleep apnea patient is, which is that he's male and he's uh, rotund. He's got kind of central obesity, in other words, kind of a large belly, right, and is middle-aged and is uh, pleasantly sleepy during the day, the so-called Pickwickian patient. Um, but I That sounds like my dad. <laughs> oh, is that right? My dad is no longer with us, but he used to snore his head off. And I mean, it was, we used to laugh about it as kids, but yeah, he was like overweight and would always take naps during the day. Yep. And, 
And, and it is true that if you're overweight, you stand a greater risk of having those things. However, I have lots of patients that are 110, 120 pounds. Wow. Uh, or, or teenagers, and they're snoring like crazy. Uh, so, uh, so snorers don't, do not necessarily fit kind of a single bill. Mm -hmm. um, so it is true in general for, that for overweight patients, um, the tendency to snore does kind of reduce in general if you lose weight. Um, and the same thing goes with obstructive sleep apnea, but weight loss may not make sleep apnea go away completely. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it does not, even if you're not all that overweight of a person. So it bears evaluation clinically, especially if the bed partner is hearing clearly witnessed breathing pauses during sleep. It doesn't matter how many years that your partner has heard this, it's still abnormal. Yeah. You shouldn't be stopping your breathing while you're sleeping. And it definitely bears an evaluation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds dangerous. So, I mean, we laugh about it. We, you know, we make fun of our, our partners for snoring really loudly um, until it, be, it becomes a major problem like that. So that's, that's a huge point. So what, what are your opinions about using natural remedies like melatonin or chamomile tea as part of the winding down routine? Yeah. So there's a whole host of different agents that you can get, that you can apply or ingest that uh, are purported to be associated with an increased ability to fall asleep or stay asleep or sleep more, sleep more deeply. Um, and it really depends on uh, what the agent is that you're considering. So melatonin, for example, uh, is a, a hormone that our brains actually release. It's actually the equivalent of a hormone that we naturally make. And it is true that melatonin does play an abiding role in terms of how we sleep and when we achieve sleep. So it's not a direct sedative agent per se, like uh, some of these prescription medications that are out there, um, but it is uh, an agent, a biologically created agent that is kind of a signal that tells your brain, hey, you know, it's kind of a certain time of the night, it's kind of time for you to start thinking about becoming drowsy. So in certain specific applications, it is a potentially useful agent uh, that may uh, help with, uh, with your ability to fall asleep, especially, for example, uh, if you're a shift worker and you have substantial changes in terms of uh, the timing of your sleep day after day, or if you are a pilot or something like that and you are uh, changing time zones all the time. So there are some you know, uh, potential useful clinical applications for that. Other things you, you have to you have to be careful and and look at the literature carefully and see the degree to which they may be helpful. I think a lot of the agents that people use to kind of help them sleep, um, like there's valerian root and you know all of these herbs. That's right, and some of them do have uh, some soft uh, medical literature evidence of a suggestion that they may be helpful. Um, I think it just all needs to be used in context. Uh, so again, for example, if you if you drink chamomile tea but, tea, but you're spending 12 hours in bed trying to sleep, I mean, you, you may have difficulties anyway. Mm -hmm. So to me, it really comes back down to the reason why a person is having the difficulty. And again, by the time they come to see me, they may have multiple reasons. I mean, they may be drinking caffeine uh, at seven o'clock at night and you know, spending 10 hours in bed and having very regular sleep schedules. So my job is to try and kind of identify those things and uh, to help uh, create a clinical situation that allows those things to improve. And maybe the team might not be necessary anymore. 
Right. I know a lot of people who you mentioned Ambien earlier. Um, so what are some of the, the pros of using a medication like that to help you get into a better sleep routine versus the cons? Like what are the downsides of using that as a tool? Right. So, you know, I will tell you that there's definitely a place uh, for prescription medications to help people sleep. There are definitely times in which it's absolutely necessary and absolutely appropriate for, uh, for patients, depending on the clinical circumstance. My, my concern is, is that the use of the medication does not necessarily address the underlying cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, for example, the reason why a person is having insomnia is because they're spending 10 hours in bed, when their body only needs seven, well, um, to me, um, spending ten, uh, seven hours in bed instead of ten is probably going to be of better long-term benefit, in my opinion, than um, utilizing a medication to help them yeah, sleep. Yeah, even if you're not so, sleeping for that full seven hours? Right, because uh, it's not necessarily just the numeric amount of time that you're spending in bed versus the amount of time that you're bi- biologically requiring sleep. It's also a host of other factors, including, again, the frustration that inevitably mm, comes mm-hmm. up it's associated with spending that time uh, awake in bed. And I mean, in a way, it kind of generates its own insomnia because now you're adding uh, your own kind of personal internal pressure to fall asleep, which oftentimes works against you. Uh, or, again, you end up being so frustrated about that time that you're spending mm-hmm. tossing and turning in bed they can actually make your own insomnia worse. So even if your body needs eight hours of sleep a night, uh, you know you can still be getting five or six hours of sleep per night just simply because of all the frustration. Right. So the idea is to really try to identify the underlying causes for the problem uh, so that those underlying causes can be addressed um, so that the sleep can occur uh, better and more naturally. Mm-hmm. That's my suggestion, um, you know. But again, there's kind of a selection bias. By the time patients come to see me, oftentimes they've gone through the medications, right? They've burned through them, and uh, quote unquote, nothing seems to help, or uh, it helped for a week and then it stopped working. But usually, when that happens, it's not because the medication has become different, so it exerts a different biological effect. It's really because there's something additional in terms of the sleep problem that has kind of trumped the good effect of the medication. I see. So I want to emphasize this. The medication, there's definitely times in which medications are appropriate and uh, useful, but uh, there are times in which it might be useful to see what else is going on with the patient that Mm -hmm. might be causing the insomnia and try and address the underlying Mm -hmm. cause. Now, you mentioned at the top of the episode that you love this form of medicine because you actually can help cure people and and see results. So how long does it normally take to get to the bottom, to get to these underlying issues that you spoke about and really make a change for the better for for these folks? Sure. So it really depends on the underlying problem. So, uh, for example, um, something that we haven't talked about yet this hour, I mean, if you're making some kind of unusual movement or behavior during your sleep, well, I mean, it's important then for me to put on my neurologist's hat and to try and uh, get as good of a description of what's going on as possible, right? Oh, yeah, so, that's like the jumpy, the jumpy types. Well, so, so yeah, so for example, right, if you're 16 years old and you occasionally talk in your sleep or you may walk around a little bit, somebody might find you in the hallway of your dorm room or something like that, um, that may be something called a non-REM parasomnia. A parasomnia is 
just simply uh, a term that means an unusual movement or behavior during sleep. Um, but for otherwise healthy kind of young people, um, non-REM parasomnias are not uncommon. However, if you've never had such movements before, but now you're 80 and you're a male and you're starting to make movements, I'm starting to think maybe this is not just regular old non-REM parasomnias. Maybe there's something going on in their dreams. So I start asking questions of the spouse, like, have you noticed unusual movements and what time of the night does it occur? And has he ever told you, hey, I remembered dreaming of riding a bicycle and uh, in, in real life, in bed, while he's asleep, he's actually moving his legs like he's riding a bicycle. That's a completely different kind of parasomnia called REM behavior disorder, which is a situation in which a person physically enacts his or her dreams. So it's a completely different kind of disorder which com with completely different clinical implications. So there are times in which more objective testing may be necessary, especially if it's not clear what's going on. And so um, sleep centers typically have something called a sleep laboratory inside of them uh, or sleep diagnostic testing center, which allows uh, the physician to have a better objective picture of what's going on with a patient's breathing, with potential physical movements uh, during sleep, so we can identify what stages of sleep movements are occurring. And um, so we do have a number of kind of more objective or quantifiable tools at our disposal that help uh, diagnose problems. So the, so the way we kind of cure people or treat people for their sleep problems depends really on the underlying cause, but there are lots of methods with which we can arrive at the diagnosis. So a few months, a year, what's the average? I know that it's variable, but is there any kind of range that you can, to give people hope that this is, you know, it's not years away? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it depends in part on the disorder. For example, sure. obstructive sleep apnea, which is a very common problem, actually, that affects millions of uh, people in the United States. I mean, once you get started on treatment, the improvements can be, uh, immediate, like within one or two days oh, of wow. starting. Uh, and it can be life-changing. A lot of uh, people will say that this is this therapy, this treatment is absolutely life-changing. Hmm. After years and years of daytime sleepiness, they're suddenly awake and alert and they're able to concentrate and they're able to uh, manage their jobs properly like they were not able to prior to the treatment. Other things like, uh, like uh, stimulus control therapy and other kind of cognitive behavioral therapies for long-term insomnia can take weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, but typically, even then, even for hardcore insomniacs, um, you know, as long as they stay with the programs, uh, oftentimes the, uh, the uh, symptoms can, can improve within several weeks or a month or two. That's great. So there's always hope. There's always hope mm -hmm. for improvement. Mm -hmm. Now, this is kind of, I'm, I'm kind of like backtracking for a second, but I'm, I'm very fascinated by this whole sleepwalking thing and making movements in your sleep. What really causes that? Is there like one thing that, is it from trauma, from early trauma? Like what may cause the brain to do that? Sure. So there's a lot we don't understand about non-REM parasomnias, but non-REM parasomnias can occur more frequently in people that are sleep deprived and in people that have sudden, abrupt arousals from deep non-REM sleep. Exactly what the mechanisms are, I'm not sure if I can tell you that, but, um, but uh, the idea 
from a clinical perspective is try and figure out what might be causing a person to have abrupt arousals from non-REM sleep. So obstructive sleep apnea is one of those things. If your airway closes and your oxygen levels become low and your brain responds to that by forcing you awake briefly, well, that can be enough to trigger an episode of sleep talking or an episode of sleep walking. Mm. Um, if you, uh, if, if there's a loud noise outside of your apartment, for example, that can trigger something like that. Um, so the reason why sleep deprivation might be a risk factor for developing such behaviors during sleep is that uh, your brain tries to essentially make up for the poor quantity of sleep by increasing the quality and deepening your sleep. And I kind of think most people are kind of familiar with that whole thing, right? You sleep, quote unquote, harder mm -hmm. after. Uh, after several days of sleep deprivation, right? It's harder for you to wake up, for example. Yeah. Um, and you feel groggier when you do wake up. Uh, so, uh, so the deeper the sleep you emerge from, um, in general, the more likely a non-REM parasomnia may occur. So there's obviously exceptions to these, but I'm talking in terms of generalities. So my recommendation for patients that are otherwise healthy and are young people uh, for whom I strongly suspect kind of a typical non-REM parasomnia, I generally recommend that they get proper amounts of sleep, which is the amount of sleep that their body requires, whoever they are. You know, for example, people that are 16, they may need closer to nine hours of sleep a night. Um, so you want to get as much sleep as your body requires, and you want to do what you can to eliminate things that might be causing abrupt arousals mm -hmm. from sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm curious, does insurance uh, cover sleep medicine in this way, or is that something that would be out of pocket? Uh, well, so, uh, so you know, the sleep disorders in general are medical issues, and, um, and so a clinic visit from me, um, you know, that generally gets reimbursed by insurances. Uh, there's, there's an evolution, kind of an ongoing evolution now about how certain testing, uh, is paid for. Um, historically, uh, obstructive sleep apnea has been diagnosed through full on in lab sleep study testing where patients come and spend the night with us, mm -hmm. uh, in our sleep lab so we can, um, do some very intense testing to see, uh, how the patient is breathing during sleep. Uh, more recently, um, there is something called home sleep testing that is more widely available now, which allows you to actually do testing uh, re relatively inexpensively at home. And in the right patient situation, that's absolutely an appropriate thing to do. And, you know, I'm all for cutting costs uh, as long as it's appropriate and as long as it's not compromising care. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very much for that. Uh, so there are definitely situations in which home sleep testing uh, that can be done at a reduced cost is absolutely appropriate. Hmm. So there's there's this kind of complex push and pull between providers and patients and uh, payers in terms of what should be paid for and how and to what extent. Um, but uh, I'm hopeful that that will that the ultimate result of that is that patients will get uh, get the care that they need and that uh, the providers uh, will be allowed to continue to uh, practice. Um, yeah. uh, so, uh, so yeah, I, I get I get bummed out about how, you know, the insurance system, especially in the U.S., kind of prevents providers from giving the best care in that regard. So that's why I wanted to bring that up. Like, should people look at their policies and see if it's covered? You know, I mean, you know, what's typical, all of that. So I'm glad that we talked about that. So what are any final takeaways that you have for the folks out there listening um, when it comes to sleep? 
Well, so I guess my number one takeaway would be, you know, don't blow off your sleep symptoms, you know. Uh, again, people are used to feeling tired and sleepy because a lot of people uh, don't necessarily get as much sleep as their bodies require. However, uh, falling asleep by accident during the day, um, it's kind of not something that you should be doing. And so if there are additional problems like loud snoring or witness breathing pauses during sleep, for example, or unusual movements or behaviors during sleep, even if these things have occurred for many years, uh, just because they kind of feel normal to you because you're either not experiencing it yourself or because they've happened for such a long time doesn't make them necessarily clinically normal. And I think they deserve uh, an evaluation, mm-hmm. a, a medical evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, daytime sleepiness can be kind of masked by lots of things. Like if you drink a couple of venti lattes, for example, that can mask the daytime sleepiness. If you're taking um, a stimulant medication for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that could mask sleepiness. Uh, if you have a very physically active job, for example, and you don't really sense any sleepiness until you come home from work, um, that can mask sleepiness as well. So um, it's just easy to blow off, and I would encourage your listeners to kind of not blow it off. Awesome. And then we did mention at the top of the episode that you would provide a, a resource or resources for people to go if they are wanting to dive deeper into their sleep issues. Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of resources out there. Uh, I guess uh, the single kind of most reliable resource that I would suggest to the public would be the American Academy of Sleep Medicine website. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine is an organization that uh, has a mission to uh, promote and uphold the best practices, clinical practices in sleep medicine. Um, And uh, they have an accreditation system, for example, through which uh, sleep testing facilities and sleep centers uh, may um, uh, demonstrate uh, the highest uh, possible quality of sleep medicine care. So I do recommend that as a resource. Uh, the website is aasmnet.org. Awesome. Morris, I am so happy that you took time to share all this amazing information with the NOL listeners and uh, wishing you all the best. I don't know what next degree is on your list, but <laughs> <laughs> I know there's something. No, no, no more degrees. I think I'm done with that. But uh, <laughs> thank you, Michelle. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your listeners today. It's a blast. Awesome. Thanks again, Morris. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.